Jesus has just raised uh, one of his good friends, Lazarus, or he resurrected him from the dead. And he is making his way to Jerusalem for the final time. And after that event, the, the, the rumors spread. Everyone knows what he's done, the miracle he has just performed. And so people are following him. He's making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this is a big deal. And not only are people responding well, but you always have those that don't love what Jesus is doing. And in John chapter 12, we read of an event about the triumphal entry of Jesus. And this event is in all four Gospels. Now, if God says something once, we should listen. But if he says it four times, we should probably take note and uh, walk away with something for our lives. And, and so I want to get right into it. John chapter 12, verse 12. Are we ready? I will take it. All right, let's go. Verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, or just another name for Israel, Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified, it has started, and this is Palm Sunday as we know it, and the people found out that Jesus, the guy that resurrected Lazarus from the dead, like he, he's coming here. This could be it. He could be our Messiah. And it was estimated that there were over 2 million people in town for the Passover. Now, not all of them were near Jesus, but easily tens and tens and tens of thousands of people probably made their way to prepare the path for Jesus to enter the city. And it said that they were grabbing their, their, their garments or their clothes and laying them on the ground. Others were grabbing palm branches from the fields and either holding them or laying them on the ground. And, and palm branches, they, uh, they symbolized like uh, joy and strength and salvation. And so having them was simply a way to, to pay tribute or pay homage to the victor or king that was approaching. And he's coming into the city. It's a big deal. Thousands of people probably just crowded around him as far as you can see. And they're all yelling, Hosanna. And Hosanna just means to save now or save us now. Now, they're probably not understanding that they need Jesus to save them from their sins. But maybe they're saying, hey, save us from Rome. Like, save us from the man. Save us so that we can be free and have a better life. But nonetheless, they're quoting from Psalm 18 is what they're referring to. And notice what he's riding on. He's riding in on a young donkey. Now, they didn't just find this and go, oh, that one looks good. Like, Jesus intended for this animal to be chosen. He actually tells his disciples, he says, all right, go to the next town over. Find the donkey that, that I've prepared, like, that I've chosen and grab it, like unhook it, bring it with you. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just tell them, hey, God needs it. And so that's what they did. They went to the city, found it, and they started unhooking it. The owners came out and said, what are you doing with our donkey? God needs it. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't recommend that for taking anything. But, you know, Jesus prepares this for them, and he rides it into Jerusalem. 
And me, like I'm reading this, it's kind of a weird choice, right? Like Jesus, the creator of the world, could have picked any animal. Like he could have rode in on a tiger. Like that would have been cool. But he chooses Eeyore to come into town. And it's like, why? Like why choose that animal? I think there's two reasons that are important for us to know. One is that it shows his intentions. That if you were a king and you were coming into a city and you wanted to make war, like you wanted to conquer, you had things to take care of, you would ride a horse. But if you were a king coming into a city in peace, you rode a donkey. And they were a little more esteemed. It was more of a noble choice than we may think. But you could tell a king's business motives by what he drove to work that day. <laughs> like you really could. And so he uh, rides a donkey in. And, and John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote Revelation. And he writes twice about Jesus riding in on an animal. The first time, he rides a donkey into Jerusalem coming in peace. The second time, in Revelation 19, he rides in on a horse, not coming in peace, but to make war against the nations that oppose him. And so in this instance, he's showing that, hey, I'm not coming to overthrow Rome or to take anything forcefully, that he is showing himself as the already proven triumphant king. And so that's one, to show his intentions. The second reason is that it was already determined that he would ride a donkey hundreds of years ago. If you caught it in verse 14, it says that he sat on it, or he sat on the donkey as it is written. We see more evidence of the entire Bible pointing to Jesus, that he is the Messiah that they have waited thousands of years to see. And everything about Jesus' life is, like, it fulfills Old Testament scripture. Prophecy written about his life, he does it. So from, from how he was born, to where he was born, to the miracles he did, to his death, his resurrection, even this donkey ride is told about in Zechariah 9.9. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You can rejoice, you can be happy, because your king is here. And that's what the people were doing. They were shouting, yelling, praising Jesus, honoring rightfully the King of Kings. Now, all of Jesus' ministry, he's been putting off this moment. He had, uh, even after he would heal people, he would tell them, like, hey, kind of keep it um, to yourself, don't tell anyone. He wanted to prevent people from pushing him to this position of, of power or potentially wanting to overthrow. But here, he knows it's time. And so he steps into this moment and this arrival into the city, this entry, is one, again, of a victorious king coming into the city in peace. And with everything that Jesus does, there's opposing reactions. And so we see the disciples' reaction, and the crowd's reaction, and then the Pharisees' reaction. So first, the disciples. Verse 16. These things, as they're watching Jesus come in, the disciples didn't understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, 
Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the disciples, they love it. This is probably the best parade they've ever seen because the last few years, they've been poor, they've been homeless, they've been looked down on, they've been confused most of the time. But here, they see their leader being praised. And they're thinking, I am glad I followed this guy because he seems to have pulled it all together. But they didn't understand as they're watching this, they didn't understand the significance of what was going on until after the fact. And so John humbly writes, like, yeah, in the moment, we didn't get it. He could have lied and said, oh, we knew it the whole time. But they kind of had the slow process of understanding who Jesus was, but it brought them to a firm commitment to follow him. So you have the disciples. They didn't understand, but they loved it. Then you have the crowds. Verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. Overall, John's saying, people were for him. They may not have understood either, but they were talking about him. It says they were telling others about him, and they were cheering because of all the miracles, the signs that he has done. But then you have the Pharisees, who, if you remember, their current goal uh, here in John 12, they want to kill Jesus. And they see him ride into the city, and here's what they say. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to each other, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. And you can almost see this, right? Like you have the general crowd that's just probably, you know, uh, miles on each side of people. And then the, kind of off in the distance, you have the Pharisees, kind of arms folded, all grumpy looking. Guys, this ain't working. <laughs> like, our plan is not going well. We're supposed to kill him, but everyone loves him. It says the world is going after him. And they, they said that, kind of exaggerating, but they had no idea how true it was. Last week, uh, as we talked about the story of Lazarus, Pastor Luke talked about after he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, that the council or the Pharisees, they got together and said, all right, we need to kill this one man so that the nation can be saved. And John writes, or he, he wrote in 11, that, yeah, one man is going to die to save a nation, but not so that they can keep their power to save them from their sins. And so God was able to flip it and use it for his glory. Same kind of thing is happening here. There's irony that they are speaking truth that, wow, the world has gone after him. That Jesus is not only for the Jewish people, but he's for the world. All people, all nations, a world that is lost and blind, who they're in rebellion against their creator. Jesus is for the world. And so John uses their statement to introduce Gentiles, non-Jewish people, wanting to come and see or to follow, to worship Jesus. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to the worship, going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, the disciples, they, uh, they were a little slow to know who Jesus is, but they weren't dumb. 
they realized that people wanted to kill Jesus. So everyone that came, they were kind of IDing everybody and, 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 and vet, like vetting them to make sure, hey, why do you want to see Jesus? Where are you from? What's your plan? They wanted to make sure no one got to him that would try to kill him. And so people, uh, Gentiles, came, since they were Greek, they came to Philip. Can we see Jesus? Philip says, ah, I don't know. Let me ask Andrew. Andrew, what do you think? Mm, not sure. So they both go to Jesus and say, hey, these people want to see you. And we don't know if Jesus ever actually met with them, but Jesus does respond to the disciples. And before we read that response, I want us to understand how important these words are. For the rest of the chapter, Jesus speaks for the majority of the time, and he has something to say for those that want to see him, for those that want to follow him. And so I want to do something a little weird. I want to pause here, and I want to look at the end of the chapter and read in Jesus' words why this response is going to be so vital for us. All right, so we're going to pause here and go to verse 44 to 50, end of the chapter. Here's what Jesus says about the words that he speaks. He cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I don't judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So there's a few things going on here. But Jesus is speaking of judgment. And judgment in the sense of that we are, all of us, myself included, we are found guilty before a perfect and holy God. That if nothing is done for our sins, we will be judged for every wrong that we've done. And we'll have to pay the penalty for that forever. But he kind of lays out this simple solution. He says, okay, you can believe in me and you'll have eternal life. Or you don't believe in me and there'll be judgment, condemnation for your sins. And how will he judge us? He says, based off what the Bible says, that God will ultimately judge people based off how they received and responded to what the Bible says, that we don't have an excuse not to believe. And notice verse 48. He said that if you reject me, you will be judged. And this word reject, it isn't just to like blatantly refuse Reject means to regard as invalid or to set aside. And some of us may wrongly believe that, well, I haven't rejected Jesus. Like, we're good. I just haven't made a decision on him yet. But that's not what the Bible tells us. That even if we think that, okay, I haven't outwardly said no, making no decision is still making a decision. That it's us rejecting or it's us setting him aside putting off that decision, or it's regarding Jesus as valid, but not valid enough to give our life to him. Jesus says we're to have faith in him or be judged 
for our sin. And Jesus tells us that he didn't say this on his own, that God told him what to say, that Jesus' truth is God's truth. And this is where I want us to understand how important Jesus' words are. Knowing that what God says is important for Jesus, should it not be important for us too? That means that everything that Jesus says, because God has informed him of what to say, everything that is said by Jesus, it's authoritative, it is meaningful for our lives, and it carries weight. That's what I want to keep in mind as we see the response to the disciples who tell Jesus that, hey, these guys want to see you. So we're going to go back to verse 23. And remember, these people come to Philip. Hey, we want to see Jesus. So Philip and Andrew tell Jesus, and here's his response. He answered saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, which in the terms of Jesus just means buckle up, get ready, listen to this. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He's saying, that, okay, they want to they wanna see me. Well, my time has come. I have to go die. I have to go face the cross. Like, how can I be their Messiah how can I die for their sins if I don't go do the thing that I need to accomplish? And he illustrates this with a, with a grain of wheat. He says, just like um, a grain of wheat, when, it's, when it dies, or in other words, when it's buried, when it's planted, that's when life can grow. In the same way, Jesus, like that seed, will die. He will be buried or planted in the ground, and from that death will come life. And not just him, or not just life for him, but life for others, for us. And that principle of death bringing life, not only is true for Jesus, but it's true for us as believers. And, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. But Jesus is teaching this truth, and he's saying, hey, I have to go face a cross. I have to be crucified. It seems like that truth overwhelms him. Verse 27 says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says that it is, or that he is troubled. It's that same word used in chapter 11 when Jesus wept with Mary and Martha, you know, um, dealing with Lazarus and his death. Jesus knows what's coming, and he's not necessarily looking forward to the pain and the pressure that comes with this. And so he just says, like, hey, I could be saved, but then I would miss my whole purpose of being here. And that's true, because if Jesus didn't follow through, if he doesn't go to the cross, I'm lost. We're hopeless. We have no greater hope. And in this crisis, he feels distressed, uneasy, but even in the struggle of knowing what's right, even when it's the difficult thing to do, he ends with wanting God to take the lead. And then we see God respond. Verse 28, Father, 
glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. So people audibly hear the voice of God and they still don't understand it. They still don't really hear it. Some are like, oh man, it's storming out here, it's thundering. Others are saying, no, that was an angel for sure, but it was God. Verse 30, and Jesus answered to the crowd, the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world, just another name for Satan, will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, Believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. And these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. During the life and ministry of Jesus, God only spoke, like audibly, from heaven three times. And they were big moments. The first time was Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry. The second time was during his transfiguration. And this is number three, the third time. And he tells the people Hey, God's voice, like, that wasn't for me. That was for your benefit. And God affirms what Jesus is saying, that through the cross, God will be glorified. And notice, I don't know if you did, but what Jesus kept coming back to in that passage we just read is his death. That it's through his death on the cross that Satan will begin to lose his power in this world. That it's through his death on the cross that he will draw sinners to himself. That Jesus took the cross, which was seen as horrendous and the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone. Jesus took it and made it to what us as believers are most thankful for. That he used it for God's glory. And it was the center point here and it should remain the center point for our lives as well. And so people... We're conflicted because they're hearing Jesus say that he has to die. But they were wrestling with this idea of who Jesus was saying he was and who they thought he was. Because they're going, wait a minute, hold on. The Old Testament uh, says that the Christ, the Messiah, will remain forever and his kingdom is everlasting. So wait a minute, how can that person die? We thought you were the Messiah and... If you're saying you have to die, then you can't be it. So who is it? Who is this guy? That they couldn't reconcile their hero having to die to save them. And instead of doubting their expectations, they doubt Jesus. But the same thing happens with us today. That we may have a picture of who God is or what he wants for our lives. And when it doesn't match up with the Bible we tend to take our side, right? Like we tend to favor our opinion or our thought. Like, okay, that doesn't seem right. 
God probably doesn't operate this way. There's no way the Bible teaches that. I mean, that's just kind of old school. Or, you know, there's no way he expects me to do this in my life. And we may believe that, but it's so important to not let our own opinions form the reality of who God is to us. And Jesus answered, okay, who is he? He says, he's the light of the world. And while the light is there, he's telling them, challenging them to believe. And John then summarizes Jesus' ministry uh, by talking about the responses from people. Verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. John kind of recaps his public ministry as we kind of see the end here. He recaps it, and if he could use one word, it would probably be unbelief. That God doesn't force anyone to him, and so he gave them over to their unbelief. They were revealed to truth. They rejected him, and so God continued that pattern by hardening their hearts. That sinful, guilty people, they have been condemned to be what they chose to be, which they wanted to reject Jesus. God allows them to continue to do that. But I know it's often, um, it can seem kind of just uh, negative, like, oh man, everyone is rejecting Jesus and no one really gets it. But there are some who did. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved, notice that word, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So these believers, they weren't ready to, to go public. They weren't, uh, it sounds like they put their trust in Jesus, but they wouldn't speak up about their faith because they would rather have man's approval than God's. John wrote that they loved the approval of men more than they loved the approval of God. And so that root issue is kind of where I want to land here this morning. That root issue of uh, relating how Jesus put it, it's another way, not that they loved the approval of men, but what they really were struggling with is that they loved this life too much. That a disciple of Jesus should not love this life. He says that we should hate it. Now, I'm not saying that everything that happens in your life, you should despise it and just be grumpy all the time. Like, okay, it's winter. Why can't it be summer already? And my job is awful. My wife, my husband, they're insane. My friends are dumb. And now I come to church and I have to listen to the youth pastor. I hate my life. Not saying that. But what I'm saying, some of you laugh too much. That might, might be a little true. What I'm saying is that in comparison... That he's saying, hey, don't love this life, hate this life. It means that in comparison to knowing Jesus, everything else is lost. That as long as we can have him, that we are okay. 
100% of our priority, our emphasis, our effort, it goes to living for God, not to make this life better for ourselves. And think back to what he calls us to. We already read these three verses, but this is Jesus' point of what he's calling these people to. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Anyone who serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is not easy. Like what he's calling people to, it's difficult. But every step of the way, he reminds us in those verses that it's worth it. He's telling us as Christians, we must die to ourselves. But it's worth it because we will grow, that life will come from it, that we will bear fruit. As Christians, we must hate our lives, but it's worth it because we can keep eternal life. That as Christians, we must follow him to the cross, but we'll be able to follow him in glory. And as Christians, we must serve him in a humble state, humble mindset, but that's worth it because it says the Father will honor us if we do. And the last thing that I want to be doing on this stage communicating to you guys, I don't want to pretend like what Jesus is asking us to do is easy because it's not. We want you to understand what he's actually calling us to. He is saying, come and die. Follow me. He was headed to the cross. He says, come and die. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so when we serve Jesus, it's not to be saved by him. It's because we have been saved by him. And so he's calling us to this. How do we do it? How do we not love this life? How do we love eternity more? How do we die to ourselves? Basically, we submit every part of our life to the cause of Christ. We submit every part of our lives, a part of our life to him. That when we become a believer, we realize that our life is not about my dreams and my goals and my wants and my desires. It is about letting God use me for his glory. And this is difficult because as Christians, we tend to live in comfort. And, and, and again, I'm not just speaking to you. I needed this probably more than anyone else in the room this morning. But it's kind of easy to just claim Jesus, and it really doesn't cost us anything. Like even when we give our money or our day or our energy, like it's often done out of our margin. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, I wasn't doing anything anyway, so I'm here. Or I had some money to spare, so I gave. And that's great. But as believers, we should do those things even when it's difficult. And maybe, whatever it is for you, but maybe it's, okay, well, we've been saving for this vacation. We finally have enough money. We can finally go on that trip. But you know what? This family in, in our church needs this money more than we need to go on a trip. So I'm going to put Jesus first and, and bless them. You know what? It's been a long day. I, uh, I need to get to bed. Uh, work was crazy. I had to get up early in the morning. But you know what? I'm going to put 
Jesus first and spend 30 minutes praying and reading my Bible because I know I need him more than anything else. Or you know what, I, I have this awkward tension with these people and I really don't like them, but I'm going to put Jesus first, put my pride aside and forgive them and go speak to them and work this out and then pray for them every day. Or I have my day off and it's my time to get things done. I have errands to run, the house are clean. And maybe instead of using that for what I want to do and what I think is best, maybe God wants me to use that time to serve other people. Like when was the last time that, that you gave or that you obeyed God and it cost you something? Because when we follow Jesus, it's no longer about us, that we put him first. And we find as many chances as we can to say no to ourselves and yes to him. That we simply are willing to obey him no matter what. And again, this is not easy. Jesus, when he knows that the cross is coming, it says that he was troubled. Like he was stressed over this. Like this brought... Um, some emotions with it. But at the end of the day, he said, Father, glorify your name. He was putting God first, not himself. And that is a decision that we will have to make not only when we are saved, but every single day following. God, help me lay down my life for your glory. God, how do you want me to work at my job? God, how do you want me to, uh, to handle my marriage? God, how do you want me to love my neighbor? So now if we could maybe do some self-inventory, what area in your life do you still need to submit to Christ? What area in your life are you not fully living up to the call that Christ is calling us to? What area do we still need to die in? Maybe it's uh, how we handle money. Like, do we spend money? Do we save money to make this life better? Or do we spend it that'll, in a way that'll make our eternity better? Or maybe it's our time. Like, do we fill our spare hours or our calendar with things that we want to do and things that we have to get done? Or do we pray and ask God, hey, help me to see opportunities that will glorify you? Maybe... Some of us need to submit our personalities to God. That a lot of us may have this image that we want people to view us as and we try to maintain it. And it's like, oh, well, that's just how I've always been. I know God's calling me to something maybe different or better, but this is just me. Like, you know, I'm, I'm always the funny, sarcastic person. And it's like, uh, no, the reality might be that you just complain a lot and tear people down with your words and then you laugh after well, you know what, I, I've just never been a people person. Like, I really don't need to let anyone into my life. It's fine. But the reality might be that you're just afraid to let somebody see the real you, and you'll never experience the grace and the unity that God intends for his church. Or maybe, and I, I'm not picking on anyone here, but I, I want to express how much we need to submit to Jesus. Some of us need to submit our Facebook comments to Jesus because we have a desire. I need to let them know that they're wrong and I need to make sure they know that I'm right and we're arguing over this thing and it doesn't matter how I come off, but we put our desires above God's desire for us to simply love people and that's not what they're getting from that. 
What area is it for you that you need to submit to him? Anything that we give up in this life with the goal of glorifying God, you will not be disappointed. And some of us may say, okay, well, if I have to die to myself, that means I can't do things that I want to do and I'm going to miss out on, on these things in life and it's not going to be as enjoyable. And God promises us time and time again, everything we give up for him, it will be worth it. Because we're not living for this life. We have an eternity to look forward to. And that's what he wants us to keep in mind. You know, we, uh, it's, it's kind of a different um, call. Sounds a little sad and, and tough. Jesus says, hey, come and die. But the reality is that it is the only way that we can truly live out our purpose. That there is real joy and real contentment and real meaning only found when we are willing to let our life be at God's disposal. And I want us to understand really what he's calling us to. So let's follow him. Let's go ahead and pray this morning as we, as we wrap up. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, most of all, for your son that has died in place of us so that we don't have to pay the eternal penalty that you have poured your wrath on him through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And God, we're just understanding that's where our hope comes from. And I pray that you would allow us to, to kind of see our lives or that other people would kind of help speak into our lives. But God, that we would just take inventory and to know that there are things that we need to die to, that there are things that we need to submit to you, that your call as a Christian, for us as a Christian, is not to just believe in you and then have a good life. The call is to come and die. Help us do that. Give us strength to, to obey you. Help us to see that it's worth it. Help us to have greater faith so that our life could be used not for our enjoyment, not for our pleasure, but for your glory. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.